Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. We are one church that meets in various locations across Greater Manchester. For more information about who we are and where we meet, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Tonight we continue our Portrait of Jesus series. And this is taking us through John's Gospel, which is one of four accounts of Jesus' life in the New Testament. And John's purpose for writing this account of Jesus' life is actually right at the end of his book when he says this, These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So everything that John includes is for that purpose. It is for that argument. And this week we're going to be in chapter 12, verses 9 through to 26, carrying on from Tom last week who was in verses 1 to 8. But tonight I want to start with a question. Do you have a moment in your life when praise was being poured on you? Where you were the centre of attention, all eyes were on you and everyone was singing your praises? Or maybe you've been on the other side, you've been part of a crowd that is praising heap on somebody else. I want you to think about how those moments made you feel. Did you love the praise? Maybe you hated it. Did you wish you weren't part of the crowd, but that the crowd was actually for you? Maybe the praise made you feel powerful. Maybe giving it to someone else made you feel jealous. Or maybe you felt driven to keep that feeling for as long as possible. I have a, a praise being heaped on me moment, actually. Um, I started playing drums in church when I was about 10 or 11-ish. And I was quite small, and you couldn't really see me behind the kit. And everyone at church had watched me grow up, so they were all very supportive. They were telling me how good I was. They couldn't believe how good I was for my age, um, and things of that nature. So every time I would come off the stage at the end of church, everyone would praise me. And what I learned from this was, I probably am the greatest 11-year-old drummer ever, and no one is ever going to match my talent. After some time, I came to find out, Sally, that it wasn't actually true. After a year or two, and I got a bit taller and you could see me, people stopped praising me so intensely. They got used to me playing, and that was that. My reign as the greatest child prodigy drummer ever was finished. But it did give me a bit of a complex, because in that moment, I felt like I ran the world. I wondered, well, maybe if I play a bit better, or differently, or maybe even louder, then maybe people will notice again, and that praise will come back. It didn't happen. The human version of power and glory tends to get sour pretty quickly. And I wasn't exactly powerful at 10 or 11 playing drums in church, but I definitely felt like I had a bit about me. We get power hungry, we become full of ourselves, we think we're invincible. Or if we're on the other side watching someone be praised, maybe we become envious or even jealous. Humans have a track record of being rubbish when it comes to power. It tends to pull us deeper into wherever we find it until it's gone, until it becomes something it was never meant to be. We see power corrupts our leaders, our politicians, artists, celebrities all of the time. And we see it tonight in our passage as well with the Jewish leaders. They see their power slipping away and their desire to hold on to it corrupts them. This passage tonight is Jesus deconstructing the world's view of power and what it means to actually be powerful. He shows us that kingdom power is humble, it's meek, and it's full of grace. And a great phrase used to describe this type of behaviour is the upside-down kingdom. And very often, 
kingdom actions, Christ-like actions, upside-down kingdom actions look like doing the exact opposite of what the natural human reaction might be. And that's what Jesus calls us to, a counter-cultural life, a life that will look upside-down to others and at times probably fail upside-down to ourselves. And we see this in the actions of Jesus compared to the actions of the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. Jesus has praise and glory poured on him, but he is going to bow before his enemies and later be killed to defeat death on the cross. So if you want to turn with me, we're going to read John 12, 9 to 26, and it will be on the screen behind me. All right. Cool. Here we go. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, This is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. And Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies... It remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honour the one who serves me. So there's quite a bit going on there. Uh, And a brief recap is Jesus is arriving in Jerusalem for Passover festival. And Passover it was this Jewish festival where people would descend on Jerusalem to celebrate it together. So Jerusalem kind of becomes this melting pot of people from all over the place, probably speaking different languages, different dialects, and expressing different types of culture. So now, not only is Jesus revealing himself to small crowds or to the people close to him, now he's kind of here on show to what is essentially the world in a small way. And his arrival is causing fanfare in the streets and even more concern for the Jewish leaders. But the first thing that we've seen in our passage tonight is that not only do this crowd want to see Jesus, but they also want to see Lazarus. Lazarus has kind of become the talk of the town because back in chapter 11, Jesus has risen him from the dead in front of a whole crowd of people. He's a walking, talking testament to Jesus' power. So Lazarus' role in this part of the passage for us 
is actually quite pivotal because underneath John's accounts of the events that are taking place, John has been using story structure to highlight to us that human power is fragile, but Jesus' power is not. John has been building an argument, and Lazarus is key to this argument. So we are going to go back to English Lit class for just a brief moment. Um, I know that people tend to be mad or English. Can I get a hand for English literature people? Wow, that's a tough crowd, isn't it? Um, well, you all listen to me, and I really like it, so we're off. Um, I'm really interested in storytelling uh, because I'm a screenwriter, and in my spare time, I, I used to, have to write a lot of scripts and watch a lot of films. This is what I studied at uni, and I'm very passionate about it. I like to watch a lot of old Japanese movies, which people make fun of me for. I watch no Marvel movies, and I'm a strong supporter of the EastEnders Christmas special. It is the only last living comedy, trust me. Um, and through watching all of this stuff, I've kind of learned that the key to screenwriting is you have to show the audience, don't tell them. If John had just written down, Jesus is powerful, humans aren't the end, it's probably not going to convince any non-believer why they should believe in Jesus. So John uses Lazarus to spark Jesus' final act, his final days here on earth. This is the part in the film where it begins to rise towards its crescendo. Usually stories work in three acts, which is a beginning, a middle, and an end. And the final one tends to have a final battle, hero saving the day, all that type of stuff. So John structures the final day of Jesus' life as a bit of a call and response for this argument he's building. We see Jesus, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Then the next piece of the story we're given is the Pharisees are then plotting to kill Jesus. Tensions begin to rise. Jesus enters Jerusalem in our passage tonight. He enters in on a donkey. The crowd anoint him as king. And then we're told that the Pharisees start to panic. They have to up their game if they want to stay in control. And now they're beginning to plan to kill Lazarus as well because he is building Jesus' case. And then Jesus predicts his death. There's a crescendo starting to build here. Jesus is now revealing how powerful he is and is also gaining popularity with the crowd. So John, starting with Lazarus, is really hitting home for us the power of Jesus and the fragility of humans who cling to power. This is a big part of his argument. But let's look at how Jesus expresses this power. Again, chapter 11, before Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, he takes the time to comfort Lazarus's family. He grieves and weeps with him. This kind of defies human expectation. Surely, if you've got all the power in the world, and someone's dead, you're just going to go in, solve it for the family, make them all happy again, boom, job done, let's all move on. But what Jesus is showing us is how to live out the upside down kingdom. How kingdom, Christ-like actions, are very, very often always the opposite of what we assume or expect we should do. Jesus stopping to come alongside the family and friends of Lazarus shows us that Jesus wants to be in relationship with us. When we hurt, he wants to hurt, and when we rejoice, he rejoices. When we relieve ourselves of the burden of controlling our lives and trust him with the outcome, if we can allow ourselves to do that, then we will start to get a glimpse of the depth of the love that Jesus has for us. And this is why Lazarus is pivotal to our passage tonight and to John's argument, because he's a clear expression of the might and power of Jesus. No army can defeat death, but Jesus can. And the crowds are now starting to see that, and the excitement and anticipation is beginning to spread. 
And this leads us into Jesus entering into Jerusalem. He's about to enter and the crowds have begun to gather. Remember that crescendo that I mentioned earlier? That begun with Lazarus is continuing to rise underneath the surface. And John is still highlighting that. The anticipation is rising. Kind of like before a band comes on, the lights drop, the crowd starts to go mental. As each member walks out on stage, the crowd get louder and louder and they're sent into a frenzy. Everybody's wondering what the first song will be, hoping they'll include their favourite one. And there's always that one person who's crying before the band come out to prove they love them more than anyone else does. And I'm fascinated by the idea of all the conversations that must have been going on in and amongst the crowd while they're waiting for Jesus to come past them in the streets. While everyone's chatting away amongst themselves, holding their palm leaves, waiting for Jesus to arrive. Maybe people are shouting and bragging about the fact that they were in Bethany and seen Lazarus walk out of the tomb. Maybe others have seen Jesus speak before. And I'm sure there'll be even other crazy rumours as well. People saying, I wonder if I'm sure he's going to come in on a horse, charge in on a horse. Surely he'll turn up with an army. He's going to overthrow the Roman Empire. All this type of stuff where people, human expectation runs to. This is the human expectation of power. Control, earthly justice, garments or chariots that show that someone is powerful or wealthy. This is what people tend to expect. But Jesus does none of these things. And I'll read verses 12 to 19 again, uh, just to remind us. So the next day, the great crowd that have come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. So the crowd is hyped, anticipation is building, and in comes Jesus on a donkey. And the crowd do still praise him. Like we've read, they shout Hosanna, they shout, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But he has just raised a man from the dead, We're aware that the Pharisees are getting sweaty under the collar, and this is his victorious entrance. Kind of crazy crazy scenes that continue John's point, that Jesus' power is not fragile. He moves through the city on this young donkey. No great horse, no great army. Jesus' power is so much greater than that. He needs neither. He just needs this donkey. Once again, Jesus isn't simply entering a city on a donkey. There are lots of other things going on as well which John very helpfully points out. So the first is Jesus is fulfilling a prophecy. Uh, John includes the prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9 uh, in his verse 15, where it says, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is come and seated on a donkey's colt. Uh, back in Zechariah chapter 9, when this prophecy was first um, spoken, the imagery of power and glory that will come with this king of Zion, with Jesus, is pretty spectacular. There's imagery of battle bows being broken, peace being proclaimed to the nations, and that his rule will extend from sea to sea, and that he will ride in on a donkey, 
There is no need for armies and there's no need for chariots. But this image of a donkey, what does this say about Jesus' power? Donkeys are usually slow, they're small. I just think of Eeyore, so they look a bit sad and depressed as well at times. Even the opening lyrics to the, the Christmas hymn, Little Donkey, go like this. Uh, Little donkey on the dusty road, gotta keep on plodding onward with your precious load. Hardly screams powerful. But it does say humble, it says gentle, it says caring, it says servant-hearted. Jesus is showing us again how he wants us to be, how he wants us to live, and that gentle humility, that to be servant-hearted, is more powerful than anything else. Secondly, when Jesus first spoke with Martha, back in chapter 11 again, when Lazarus was first ill, his sister Martha went to speak to Jesus to, to tell him of this, and Jesus says this to her, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that his son may be glorified through it. Martha is watching this happen, and it is just the beginning. But again, it is just the beginning, because also, John says in verse 16, his disciples didn't fully understand what was going on until Jesus was glorified. And this will have been the same for Martha. The magnitude of this moment really doesn't come into focus until Jesus dies on the cross and rises from the dead. Everyone around him doesn't get the big picture. And I wonder if they were thinking, this is, really this is really great because Jesus is getting all this praise. But surely it's allowed to be a little bit bigger, maybe a little bit grander. And once again, expectations of what human power should be are thrown out the window. Because this is not human power. This is the power of heaven touching earth. But what is human power up to at this point in the story? Verse 19 tells us that the Pharisees are freaking out. They're shouting and blaming each other, pointing fingers. They say, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the world has gone after him. Earlier on, they've talked about you know, killing Lazarus and they're killing Jesus as well. They're all in an uproar. Human power is terrified because it's losing its grip. And by following through in their plan, they're only fulfilling the plan for Jesus' life. All roads lead to Jesus being glorified, no matter how hard they want to try. And this is where I want to finish with Jesus responding to the Greeks which is verses 20 to 23, which tells, tells us that this group of Greeks have come up for Passover. They've heard the buzz around Jesus and decide, we wish to see Jesus. Fair enough, doesn't everyone else? They've heard the hype, seen the crowd. They maybe even caught a glimpse of him riding in on a donkey. And all they know now is we have got to see this guy. We just have to, which is an incredible desire. Like a subject asking permission to see their king. And Jesus responds with them from verse 23 on. And I'll just read a bit of what he has to say. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. This is Jesus' clearest point of what it means to be powerful, to be Christ-like, and to live out the upside-down kingdom. Verse 24, Jesus says, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it can remain only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus is comparing himself to this kernel of wheat that must die if it is to bear fruit. 
The glory of Jesus is the glory of the cross, and the way of the kingdom is not about earthly power, but sacrifice and service. Again, just like the donkey, the imagery that Jesus chooses to use is a bit strange. A kernel of wheat. If you think about a wheat field, how many kernels would be in that field? It's such a small, insignificant thing, yet Jesus instills it with the power of heaven, and it takes on this whole new life, this whole new meaning. There's now nothing more powerful than this little kernel of wheat. That kernel of wheat is life-changing. And in verses 25 to 26, Jesus makes the point explicit that the same truth that he's taught about himself is also what he calls us to do if we follow him, to lay down our lives in order to find them. In trusting Jesus with our lives and losing them, we can gain the life we were truly meant to live. Jesus turns our view of power completely on its head. Christ-like power is sacrificial, it's humble, gentle, loving, meek. Jesus calls us to love our enemies and be patient and kind in the midst of persecution. This is what he demonstrates for us on the cross. The power of his love, self-sacrificial love and humility that meant everyone who called on his name for the rest of eternity gets to be saved. This is what it means to live out the upside-down kingdom. So how do we do that for the first time or the millionth time? I think just like the Greeks, we have to say in our hearts that we wish to see Jesus. Um, and the Greeks were really active in their wish. They seen him, they thought of it, and they went, we gotta, we got to go and get this guy, we've got to go and chat to him. And I think we need to do the same. We have to seek him out. This is something that I've been thinking about a lot recently. What does it mean to seek Jesus? And I think sometimes, me included, we can overcomplicate it or give it rules that aren't there or we have to feel like we have to act or perform a certain way. And a great friend of mine recently said to me, when we were talking about this topic, he said, to follow Jesus is simply to pursue peace. And that will look different for everyone. That might mean making countercultural decisions to what you or people around you are thinking or feeling or are naturally driven to do. For me, that looks like being in control. I love to be in control. How can I control this situation? What decisions do I need to make to make sure it happens the way I think it needs to happen? So for me, the upside down kingdom version of that is how can I let go? only making my next decision based on whether I felt peaceful about it. And if I didn't feel peaceful, then I'll leave it to tomorrow and I'll address it with Jesus again. And that was how I learned how to begin to walk in step with Jesus each day. Because my decision-making in order to stay in control was working from a place of Christ is in control. I have, sorry, because my decision-making in order to stay in control wasn't working from a place of Christ is in control. I have lost my life in order to gain it. It was coming from a place of, I don't want to trust Jesus with this thing. I'll give him everything else, but I cannot give him this. Once I pursued the peace that Jesus offers, I seen God move in ways I never could have imagined. God makes beauty of our mess if we let him in. This is the gift he's given us on the cross. The band want to come back up. Later in John, Jesus says this about peace. In John 14, he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. And in John 16, he says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I just want to encourage us to be like the Greeks. 
in our hearts say, I wish to see Jesus. Thanks for listening. Christchurch Manchester is one church that meets in various locations across Greater Manchester. To explore this sermon or learn more about our church, please navigate to the links provided in this podcast description. From there, you can connect with us on social media. And you're welcome to check out the music links featured in this episode from our very own musicians. You can also discover current events and information about where we meet on Sundays and various groups or community projects that you can join in with. If you're interested in knowing more about us or wish to join us for one of our meetings, please reach out. Simply drop us an email at hello at ccm.org.uk. We look forward to connecting with you.